Hello and welcome to another episode of the new season of Executive Learning Rewired, the podcast that talks about some of the biggest challenges faced by HR and learning and development professionals. I'm your new host, Tiago Kivi, and today our topic is transformational culture. And today to explore this topic, I have here with me at the F2 Studios a very special guest, David Lido. David, welcome and thanks for being here. You're welcome, Tiago. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. So, David, I understand that you are the CEO of the TCM Group. You're also a highly experienced mediator and I believe you're also the creator of some really key frameworks for the industry. You now just launched your second book, which is all about transformational culture, right? Which is pretty much the topic of the, this conversation today. But before we get into the conversation, I just want to really get to understand a little bit uh, more about you. You know, where did you grow up? How did you get to where you are? You know, what are you doing today? You know, how? tell me a little bit about yourself, about your life. Uh, of course. Thank you, Tiago. So I grew up in uh, Nottingham, up in the East Midlands, and um, I grew up... Um, Sort of fairly, fairly normal life, I guess, but I did come across uh, in my in my schooling life um, some considerable aspects around racism and discrimination, um, and which troubled me. So I thought I wanted to go and learn more about this. So I went and did a degree in race relations mm -hmm. um, up in Edgehill uh, University, part of Lancaster University. At the yeah. So I went and studied race relations to try and help me understand more about issues around exclusion, mm. inclusion, and diversity. I was very passionate about uh, developing. Uh, a stance and understanding of anti-racism and, uh, mm. and, and the principles that underpinned racism and discrimination. And then following that, I went to work in Leicester in the East Midlands and I was involved in the initial stages in working with re regeneration projects in the, in the inner city in Leicester. Mm. And I worked with various communities, but I was particularly focused on working with Black Asian minority ethnic communities mm. to involve them in regeneration initiatives. Mm. And I saw firsthand the very insidious and pernicious and damaging impact of conflict within communities, within families and between um, communities, mm. and the woefully inadequate efforts of various organizations who were there to support communities, mm. uh, who often failed to address issues, um, mm. who were very late and often overreacted. And I kind of align that to many of the management issues, I see, the response I see to mm. conflict in the workplace. I saw a culture of extensive inaction mm. or expensive overreaction. And I'll talk more about how I think that permeates through many of our organizational responses mm. to culture and conflict. Ran that for eight years. Mm. Um, and I began to grow uh, in the area of restorative justice, um, using skills as a facilitator and a mediator to work with victims and offenders, began with low-level antisocial behaviour and criminality. Right. And after about eight years, I was working with serious criminal offences up to and including unlawful killing. Really? Victims, families uh, coming together with the offender uh, and so on and so forth. So I learned a lot and um, then I was invited by a government department, the Cabinet Office, to come and bring some of this internally into the UK civil service and I work closely with the civil service mm. to this day um, and two large London boroughs in, in Hounslow and Croydon. And as a result of that, I thought I would best go and study and learn more about organisations, Tiago, and try and figure out how they work. <laughs> so I, yeah. did a, I did an MBA uh, at De Montfort University. <clears throat> I was awarded a distinction following quite intensive scrutiny and study of the use of mediation and alternative dispute resolution in organisations, systems, strategies right. and processes. Mm. And from that, I got very interested in total quality management, total quality systems, quality processes and conflict management. And I 
merged conflict management and total quality management to come yeah. together with what I call total conflict management. And that became my company name. And for 20 years, over the last 20 years, since 2001, when I set the company up originally, we, 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 we specialize in three areas, I guess. The first area is we send people into companies to mediate and facilitate dialogue between parties in dispute. So we mediate and resolve issues through mediation, facilitation, and connection. Mm. We haven't got to do that for a very long time before you realize actually there are things that are broken in the organization that mm. are leading to the conflicts. It's not yeah. just personalities, it's the structural, systemic, and endemic issues. Much of it arising and arriving from a failure of management and leadership at some stage to address it, the issue. And as I said, the culture of extensive inaction and expensive overreaction is deeply ingrained in our organizations. And I'll talk more about that mm -hmm. when we get into, in, get into the session. Um, so training managers and leaders to support them to be confident, mm -hmm. competent, and courageous mm -hmm. to have these mm -hmm. quality conversations, quality conversations, as I call them. And the third part of the organization and the bit that we're really passionate about and driving now isn't just mm -hmm. around resolving the issues. It's not just about developing the leadership and management capabilities. It's looking at the systems and the processes within which all of this operates, mm -hmm. in particular, some of the broken and corrosive HR processes, disciplinary mm -hmm. grievance mm -hmm. performance procedures, some of the systems and norms and cultural orthodoxies in our organizations, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. in themselves intrinsically retributive and damaging. So we work across that broad area to help shift and change the culture, which then mm. lent itself to the second book, Transformational mm -hmm. Culture, which mm -hmm. is trying to present all of this. So that's a little bit of a, the, the journey I've been on over the last uh, 30 years. You're fascinating, fascinating. And just in this journey, especially now, you know, uh, race relations, diversity, this is becoming a really big issue now for HR, right? You know, it has been, but now, you know, with social movements really pushing, which is a great thing, right? Have you seen any change like recently, or especially in the last few years or acceleration in in, in an improvement or is just like, is it just noise? I've seen, I mean, you know, having been, kind of studying this all my life and working in this area all my life mm. it's, it's it's really good to see that social justice movement you know, following the murder of george lloyd black lives matter me too mm -hmm. obviously the sarah everard murder and the sort of review in the metropolitan police and other police forces so it's leading to some cultural changes mm -hmm. uh it's really positive to see focus and attention being given to these i guess as a mediator i believe passionately in the power of dialogue mm -hmm. and i believe passionately that dialogue can generate learning that learning can generate the mindset, which can drive the behavior, which can change mm. the culture. But at the start of this is dialogue. So where I sometimes struggle in my work with organizations and, and taking a look back is organizations uh, resisting the focus on promoting dialogue as a system, a systemic and structural approach to tackling discrimination mm. and instead creating zero tolerance policies, processes and procedures, which give the appearance that sometimes something is happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But actually the felt experience of, 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 of black employees and other employees who are experiencing discrimination is still one of utter fear, utter uncertainty, utter distress mm. uh, and creating psychological and emotional and physical harm for people. And I see this happening all the time, even in organisations with the lovely glossy zero tolerance policies really? on X, Y and Z. 
So there's a debate and a discussion to be had about mm. the importance of taking a, a, a tough action on, on mm. these issues, coupled with mm. a space for people to think and engage with each other constructively and collaboratively. Mm. And in essence, that's what we try to create in our work with organisations, is creating that space for people to come together. Because it delivers real benefits. Mm -hmm. We'll obviously talk more. But it, the, the key one, and I think the, the, that, that, that taps into the, to the work you're doing, mm. is, is around learning. We can learn from each other by talking and listening to each yeah. other. And when we impede the, the dialogue, we then have to create structures for learning. And I believe that adult-to-adult -adult dialogue can get, deliver insight and learning and growth. Mm -hmm. That can be incredibly powerful. And I hope that the conversation today will tap into some of that thinking about the power of dialogue as part of the Yeah, structure. Yeah, let's, let's jump into it. Let's talk yeah. about uh, this adult-to-adult -adult dialogue that you mentioned. What does, does it actually mean? And... Um, what are we actually doing wrong? Sure. Well, if we look at, I mean, if my, my, my main focus within organizations is mm. the use of formal processes to resolve issues. And mm. I'm going to focus in particular on the grievance procedure, the disciplinary procedure, the performance management processes. There's this mm. suite of policies, like what I call the GBH policies, the grievance, bullying and harassment procedures. So within our organizations, we have efforts through leaders and managers at a discretionary level to try and have positive conversations within teams. We have town halls and we have meetings, mm -hmm. reviews and so on and so forth. But as soon as things go wrong, as soon as things start to, to fester or there's a conflict or a tension or a disagreement, as soon as we start to see those problems occurring, we're mm. presented with a number of choices. The choices, however, are very limited in our organizations. The choices are, do I go up and have a conversation with the other person? Well, that can be very difficult to do and we'll explore why it's difficult to do it takes mm. real courage and you need to have skills mm. to be able to have that adult conversation it can become very emotive people can mm. have expressed the f word that can be very challenging don't worry Doug, i'm not talking about that f word mm. i'm talking about the f word of feelings right and we struggle with feelings and there are other f words which i'll reference today so uh, but those are those are very difficult mm. so we sometimes avoid that conversation mm. so we subcontract that conversation that you and i should have had when we were diff in having difficulty to a process the process will fix it yeah, Fine. yeah. The process the process immediately invokes a parent child response between the individual the employer and and the employee and it it's reductive it tries to reduce a difficult interaction between people in the workplace to right wrong win lose black mm. white defend attack mm. defend attack What's the best form of defense is attack. So very quickly, what we see is the procedures which are deployed because we subcontract our problem to process mm. actually worsen the situation because they reduce the the, 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 the the conversation to this this polarity or mm. this, this dichotomy mm. driven by the parent, the organization, mm. the child, the employee. And then we start to scratch our heads. Why are all our employees behaving like children when there's difficult it's because we've just told them that's the dynamic we expect mm. from them mm. so and of course when that doesn't work we then subcontract the problem to to lawyers because lawyers will come in and fix it because yeah. that broken problem becomes a risk to the organization and to the operation so this system of re resolution is impeded because of the notion of this parent-child relationship that's created between the employer and the employee through process mm. So the starting point for any organization who are looking to develop a transformational culture is to rip the processes up by the roots and remove the processes which invoke parent-child dialogue mm. and instead put processes and mechanisms in place that promote adult-to-adult -adult dialogue. And how do you typify adult-to-adult -adult dialogue vis-a-vis parent-child dialogue? Well, parent-child dialogue feels like we're being talked at. 
rather than talked with. It feels like one person has power over rather than power with. Yeah. It feels like I'm being told rather than asked. It re- feels like it's being I'm having someone who has authority rather than empowerment. So it mm-hmm. makes me feel frustrated and mm-hmm. angry and mm. so on and so forth. I react, to that. I react to that. Adult to adult dialogue, on the other hand, is about shared insights, empathy, understanding, shared developing a shared meaning, disagreeing well. I mean, goodness me, if there's one thing that I'd love to have on my headstone at the, <laughs> at the end of my life is David went into organisations and helped people to disagree well because we disagree so badly in this country and I guess elsewhere, but goodness me, we don't have to turn a low-level dispute into a conflated yes. uh, d- yeah. you know, conflagration between people. So how to disagree well. And that's what adult-to-adult dialogue delivers. And one other thing that I think mm. is absolutely fundamentally important that it delivers mm. is it gives the opportunity for insight and learning, which I've referenced already. That learning can unlock the key to creativity. And after all, is that not what we want from our people? to drive successful businesses of the future. That's where the smart money, the start, smart mm. investors, the smart customers, the smart talent are heading. So dialogue, adult to adult dialogue, empathy, compassion, the kind of conversations we're talking about here can unlock innovation and unlock creativity in a way that nothing else can in the workplace. So when we disagree well and have a positive conflict, a constructive conflict that leads to adult to adult dialogue, it's the key to innovation and creativity. We can solve often insurmountable problems through that discussion. So mm-hmm. I would go as far as to say as how an organisation manages disagreement, tension, conflict in the workplace is the defining character of a successful business and a successful organisation of the future. Mm. So you, you think it goes that that far? As in, and I mean, just going a little bit deeper into this point then, um, what would be the ideal adult-to-adult conversation to happen when someone raises a grievance, for example, they feel they've been discriminated against. What, if, if there's no process, what would be the, the, the way forward? So there is a process. So the process is called a resolution framework. Right. right. So there's a process called a resolution framework which replaces the disciplined performance and grievance procedures. Uh-huh. So no long, we no longer have disciplinary warnings. These warnings, again, invoke this parent-child relationship. The managers, I'm wag, no one can see it, but I'm wagging my finger mm. at you furiously, yeah, yeah. Thiago, because that's the kind of dynamic that's created. The performance improvement plan, as much as we all know that's an attempt to try and improve performance, everyone sees this as a fast track to, the, to, the, to, to, to dismissal. And the term grievance is a loaded term. It's about loss. It invokes a, a polarity and a division between mm. So we've removed all of that language. There's no longer a, a grievance mm. within the structure. There's a resolution framework. And to mm. the, within the resolution framework, one of the key, the key starting points is, is dialogue for, for managers, uh, colleagues, employees, union representatives, and other. So a large part of the emphasis is on supporting, promoting, and encouraging constructive adult-to-adult dialogue in the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we look at the HR function, we'll talk about the HR function and how the HR function at the moment is seen as the arm of management and therefore takes the side of management mm-hmm, and in a mm-hmm, disciplinary mm-hmm, procedure mm-hmm. is sat next to the manager also wag- wagging fingers. Yeah. And at the processes that HR deploy when these issues occur mean that it becomes very hard for HR to deploy what I think are important elements of HR around justice, Mm. people, culture, strategy. Mm. So the HR function would coach and mentor the managers to have those conversations. Mm. 
that the process is invoked not through a grievance procedure or a grievance or disciplinary procedure, sorry, a request for a resolution is submitted to a new unit in the organisation called the Resolution Centre. So each organisation we work with develops a resolution centre. So hmm. um, we've just we've just won um, the, the personnel today uh, change management award with TSB Bank. Uh, right. We were there uh, last week. I ran. I, I was actually recording a podcast. Well, congratulations. Thank you. We were absolutely <laughs> thrilled. And that organisation's taking steps towards aligning these processes with their, yeah. their, yeah. their culture. So you have a resolution centre who would receive a request for resolution. Right. But what's really exciting in the resolution centre, you have your union colleagues, you have your people partners, you have leaders and managers who then triage the case against a set of objective criteria. So rather than just following step one, step two, step three and mm. hoping it will work, which it never will, it will just step one, step two, three just breaks the relationship. Yeah. It makes it creates irreconcilable differences. What we're saying here is actually craft a solution based on the needs, the goals, the aspirations, the risk of the uh, of that particular case. So assess it using objective criteria, mm -hmm. then identify the most appropriate route to resolution in that case. And the vast majority of routes to resolution involve dialogue. Right, Direct of course. Dialogue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. coffee and a muffin, mm -hmm. or facilitation, or mediation, or a team building event. And it's only in the very small number of cases where it's assessed and it seemed to be more serious, that it would then go into a formal a formal route or a formal process. Mm -hmm. So the resolution framework rips up those staged, damaging, destructive and corrosive processes which result in very little uh, positive outcome for any of the parties. And instead is crafting a solution based on the individual needs, goals of each of the parties mm. and critically the needs of the organisation to deliver high-performing, effective mm. Uh, mm. relationships in, in the workplace. It's a real reframe, a rethink and a redesign of mm. how we handle conflicts, complaints, concerns, conduct. They all seem to start with a C <laughs> in, in the workplace. And it's about time we had a big conversation about this because the current systems are not working. So essentially, what you advocate is a, a resolution which is completely ba based on dialogue, right? What What is the role of the offender, to say so, and the and the person who is feeling discriminated or or who's feeling um, the grievance in, in in a certain way? How how do they participate in this dialogue? Yeah, they drive the dialogue. They, they own the dialogue. And so we don't use the language of victim and offender. Right. Although we kind okay. of trauma-informed and we use trauma-informed practices in our work because we deal with very complex cases, mm. we treat the parties as human beings. Right. And human beings muck up, Tiago. Sometimes human beings say and do the wrong thing. Human beings have a propensity to cause enormous ill and harm to other people. And it's, you know, the, the human condition and our ability to do such harm and to create such ills is... Is is, is 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 unbelievable yeah but also we have a an enormous enormous capacity to do good and to learn and to listen and to engage mm. and i genuinely believe and i think the evidence is stacking up that the majority of people do not go to work to cause problems and to do no and, to do no. and using a process called unconditional positive regard we can look behind almost every action to see at some stage a positive intention mm. But we lose sight of that because of the, the the way that the conflict unfolds. Both in our brains, we see the threat of, of danger and we become mm. very aroused. We move into that fight, flight, freeze or fall mode. The organization's systems, which are corrosive and reductive, mm. 
worsen mm. the situation. The language becomes one of blame and, and, and yeah, finger pointing yeah. and it escalates. So what we try and do is move beyond that and say, look, who, who are the human beings here? What, 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 the, what, 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 what is it that you're mm. feeling? What do you need? Mm. So to your question about the party's feelings, we would ask them, what are you observing? What's happening? What do you see happening? Describe that. How is it affecting you? How do you feel? What impact is this having on you? I call it the impact SOS. What impact does it have on you yourself? What does it have on this on the other person? So we're developing empathy, empathy. And what impact is it having on the situation? SOS. SOS the yeah. And then based on that, if someone's saying to me, look, I feel frustrated, betrayed, fed up, cross, angry, you know, pick your pick your yep. feeling of choice. The next question is a really important question is what needs to change in order for you to feel less frustrated and more satisfied in the workplace? Mm. What needs to change? So then we can create a, a, a gap between today and tomorrow. Then we can begin to pro problem solve in that gap. And mm. the individual say, well, I need to feel more respected. I need to feel heard. I need to be given voice. I need to be mm. treated as an adult. As you mm. So that's party A says this. And I'm speaking to party B and they say, well, we need to, to do this. And I need to feel valued and mm. respected mm. and mm. improve mm. trust in the workplace. And I'm like, actually, it's exactly the same as what the other person has just said. And what happens is through that dialogue process, when we're as mediators working with parties individually or together, mm. Is very quickly we see convergence of need, not always because things are different, mm. obviously, mm. but the need to feel trusted, of respected, of valued, of heard, mm. of, of creating an environment where I can flourish, where I can be the most brilliant version of me, irrespective of my beliefs, sexuality, my background, my race, my ethnicity. Right. I can be the best version of me today. Mm. That's what we need. Uh, and we lose sight of that through these formal, rigid, bureaucratic processes is the mm. humanity. And when the parties are talking to each other on that level with a psychologically safe space, with a skilled facilitator, and by the way, there's a lot of skilled facilitators in the workplace. We need right. to unleash the inner diplomat from some of our from some of these people that it's fighting to get out. But if we can create that environment for people to have those conversations, they can move mountains. Mm. And the problem I see in organizations is we, we impede those conversations happening. I don't know if it's, well, I do know in my mind, I think I know, but are we scared of them happening? Yeah. Do we see them as a risk? Don't we believe that our people have the capacity to do good and to, to drive those changes? Or have we just lumbered into this risk averse, complex bureaucratic system of, of rules and processes? You know, you, you need to cut down a Brazilian rainforest from, 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 yeah. to, to, to create the, the modern employee handbook. Yeah. The modern employee handbook is is like a Haynes manual. I don't know if you're familiar with Haynes manuals, but in you know in a sort of uh, before you could go onto YouTube, you'd have a Haynes manual on how to fix the carburetor in your Mini Cooper. <laughs> the modern employee the, the modern employee handbook is like a Haynes manual of how to hurt people, how to break down trust, how to damage relationships, and when we look through and and how to create stress, yeah, and how to invoke damaged relationships. In fact, I would say the vast majority of employee handbooks that I see are used as hammers to destroy people and destroy relationships. And actually at the heart of much of what's wrong, and this is why as a mediator, I'm beginning to challenge some of those paradigms and orthodoxies because those cultural norms that are created within our organizations exist within those systems. And the employee mm. handbook to me is one big example of we don't trust you as an employee Therefore, we're going to go create rules and systems and processes that protect us from you, our employee. Well, what a way to treat an employee who's just started working for us. That's true. That's true. But do you think this this is changing now um, with, you know, 
especially in the last couple of years, of course, COVID has really sparked a lot of change, right? You know, in our thinking, we started to review our own values, you know, the things that we really care. And organizations have consequently really started to make some positive movements as well. There's a lot more awareness of the people, of mental health, of the relationship that we have with employees. You know, we are now facing this great resignation yes. wave, in at least in the UK and parts of Europe, where, you know, employees perhaps are not feeling valued or perhaps they, are, they, they, they think that there's something else for them out there, you know, something more meaningful uh, that speaks more to their values. So organizations really, they need to be working on, on this, you know, the relationship that they have, right? Have you seen changes, more positive changes in the last few years um, when it comes to the relationship between the paternal type of organization, the rule maker? Uh, are they turning to into something a little bit more flexible, more human? How, how, what is your perspective on this? I think they are. I think a lot yeah. of organizations are searching for this um, and striving towards it. Um, whether or not they're there yet, I think is you know, it, mm. is open to, to, to a bigger conversation. I think there's, a, there's real challenges. There's a real strategic imperative. I think the great resignation, the, 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 the challenges in the labor market, I think the smart candidates, the smart investors, the smart customers are demanding an organization which is starting to live a people-centric, purpose-led, yep. values-based cultures. Are our organizations where they're driven by hierarchy, command and control, often failure to invest in our leaders and managers, giving them the skills that they need? Organizations where the leader's behavior, uh, there's almost a sense of it's one rule for the leader and another sense of uh, another rule for, for the workplace. Uh, where the HR policies and processes appear to protect mm. those bad behaviors. In fact, they protect them, value them, and reward those bad behaviors in our leadership populations, but are then seen to crush mm. others. So I think these paradoxes exist, and they are being challenged. But what I see, I think, in organizations is, is a real challenge coming from the workforce, and it's taking the form of employee voice and employee activism. You know, we've said to people, bring your whole self to work. Well, people are out campaigning. They're campaigning about climate justice. They're concerned about people drowning in the English Channel. They're concerned yep. about issues of racism and, and misogyny and power abuses within our society. They're out on the streets. They're on social media. Yep. They're campaigning on this stuff, and they've got a voice, and they want to be heard. Bring your whole self to work. Well, I'm going to bring my whole self to work, and that involves someone who's willing to speak up and challenge and my experience of working with leaders and managers in these command and control hierarchical organizations, which tends to be the norm, is they're not very good at responding to employee activism and employee voice. It's conflictual. It's often suppressed. It creates levels of frustration yeah. and resentment. Mm. But those barriers are being torn down as we speak. People are not willing to stand by and just not be heard to filling an engagement survey and nothing really changes year mm -hmm. after year mm -hmm. and to, mm -hmm. to be asked my thoughts on something but not see it feeding into yeah. structural systemic change within the workplace where we repeatedly do harm and do ill to others but get mm. away with it people mm. are not willing to tolerate that anymore they'll either leave yeah but they're not just resigning and going and on holiday and lying on a on a beach somewhere they they want meaning in their lives they're yes. striving for meaning in their lives so they will go and find organizations or environments that give them that meaning so the resignation, the great resignation that you referred to, presents a seismic shift in the way that we think about labor and talent in our organizations. And the smart organizations will be waking up to this because if they don't wake up to it, they'll be waking up to a, a, a social media storm tomorrow or an inexorable and slow death with a talent drain. 
And of course, within many organisations, they lose the people they want to keep. They, they keep the people they wish they wish they'd lost. The the leaders are struggling to to get meaning. The HR function is becoming more and more transactional because it's putting fires out. And of course, the more transactional it becomes, the easier it is to automate. So then the HR function becomes harder to define the value it's delivering mm -hmm. in the workplace. Mm -hmm. The culture becomes very challenging for issues. People's felt experience and climate in the workplace becomes stressed. It's running hard. It's stressful. It's, it's, it's damaging. And people will do what people do. So I think that following following covid the rise of social justice movements the rise of employee activism the willing to the willingness to challenge coupled with just a sheer recognition that some of those paradigms in our workplaces are no longer fit for purpose mm. and are pernicious and insidious and damaging in the same way as my experience in community relations in the early 90s mm -hmm. i'd go as far as to mm. say that it's a public health it's a matter of significant public health. Yeah. These are all antecedents to a massive opportunity for organizations to rethink how they do culture and how they do people. Exactly. And that's my next point. How do you think organizations and especially HR can really be one step ahead of this instead of just being reactive? Because that's what we see most of the time, right? Being people just reacting to problems, putting statements out or having to deal with a massive social media crisis, for example, or massive resignation so how can they be one step ahead of this and uh, what is the role of hr there's a there's a huge paradox at play within the hr profession on one level hr as the contributors to organizational strategy at board level driving those strategic changes it's exciting it's the sexy end of the hr function it's the aspiration almost to get to that level you have to a rite of passage to go through employee relations processes and so on and so forth in order to be able to get to the to, to the strategic end of HR, talent, learning, OD, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. Mm -hmm. And at the other end of the HR spectrum are people feeling sick, sad, frustrated, going through processes at home ill, causing significant harm to their relationships, their psychological well-being, their health and their relationships, and going to HR. I'll go to HR is a threat. HR is a sword of Damocles that yeah, hangs true. over the head of the hardworking, loyal worker and a, a, an employee or manager. Now, there's a paradox within there that has to be called out because it's an existential threat to the HR function. Unless HR deal with that paradox, it will struggle to have a meaningful strategic role in the workplace. And it will be seen continuously as driving these transactional processes which destroys relationships and delivers yeah. no value at yeah. all, no discernible value. And it will undermine to the point of becoming, as I said, an existential threat. So what, yeah. what's the answer, I think you were asking me? So the answer, I think, is simple. The first thing is HR must remove itself as the perception of the long arm of management. HR must stop serving management as a function and protecting management. Management needs to be able to protect themselves. They don't need an HR function to do it for them. So HR should become a truly independent people and culture function in the modern firm. We should ban with immediate effect the term HR business partner from the lexicon of HR. It is right. a loaded term. The HRBP function automatically is seen as protecting management and protect, protecting, protecting them from the a risk of an adverse outcome in the employment tribunal. Ergo, HR are on the side of management, which means they're not on my side. If you remember the dynamic I talked about earlier, defend and attack, yeah, what's yeah. the best form of defense is attack. I'm now attacking the HR function and the management function. I need a union partner next to me to help me in my attack mode. So it's immediately, it's, it's, it creates this corrosive um, and polarizing position. 
people are the business. So let's become people partners. If the people are the business and HR become the people partners and actually create an environment whereby people can be the best version of themselves, we can hold them to account, yes, mm. of course, through the, through the necessary rules and processes. But the HR function can become a truly enabling function and a truly facilitative environment whereby people can shine by coaching managers and supporting them, holding them to account when necessary, supporting people to come into the workplace to feel safe, to feel supported, to flourish within the workplace. That another F word, flourish, to create flow using mm -hmm. positive psychology in, in the workplace. So I would describe the HR, the modern people and culture function using what I would think broadly as four pillars. People, helping people to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. Culture, and we'll talk obviously more about culture, but helping to support the deployment of a transformational culture, a culture which is fair, just, inclusive, sustainable, and high-performing. That the people function becomes the administration of justice department, because at the moment, right. who does justice? Who owns justice in our workplace? But I'm not talking retributive justice, the kind of punitive adversarial justice that I've been describe it. I'm talking right. about a new and modern form of justice, which um, is, is restorative in nature. And we talked about that in, in the resolution framework. And the fourth pillar is strategy. So people, culture, strategy, and justice are the four pillars of the modern people and culture function. And if HR are able to do that, mm. I think not only does HR become a strategic function aligned to the people and aligning people to purpose and values and therefore delivering the objectives and strategic objectives of the firm, I think HR or the people function becomes the most strategically important function in the firm because it's now aligning people to purpose, to values, to strategic objectives, issues of poor productivity, which has plagued our country for so long, issues of poor levels of engagement, 30% of the workforce engaged at any one time according to Engage for Success, issues of mental health, which you talked about already, issues of other, other issues in the, in the workplace. Yeah. These become resolved by virtue of the, the, the way that I'm describing mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. And actually in so doing, therefore, the HR or the people and culture function becomes the driver on connecting people, purpose mm -hmm, and values mm -hmm. with their strategic objectives. And what a fantastic role. And when I speak to HR professionals and people professionals, they say to me, that's why I came into HR in yeah, the first place. That's that, why I did this. Yeah, that's what I would normally think. If you know, if you if you if you like HR, if you like people, you know, that's exactly the role that you want to be doing. Right. Um, just to type into this as well, you know, you mentioned people, culture, strategy and justice. What is the role of learning, learning development in, in this um, in this structure? Yeah, fantastic. So so it's a, it's a critical part of this. I think, you know, there's there's different ways of delivering learning. And I've already indicated that I think dialogue in the line is a powerful way of delivering learning. So I propose for the development in, in organizations of what I call a transformational culture hub. Right. Now, the Transformational Culture Hub is a cross-functional hub, which includes the, the, the key partners that you'd be talking about, so the people function, L&D, and so on and so forth, OD, but also includes managers and union reps, which is really important, and employee representative groups and others. And that in culture hub becomes predictive and proactive in identifying mm. areas around learning, around development, around policy development, around growth, around strategic uh, development of the organization. And within that culture of working collaboratively with a range of key stakeholders can then deploy whatever the learning and talent requirements might be and supporting the culture that, I, that I'm describing and would have a series of work streams. So there's a key role for learning and, and development. Mm. 
But I do ask a really difficult question and I kind of want to pose it now because I've been going into organisations for 20 years and for 20 years people have been saying to me, David, we recruit the manager, we, we recruit the employee, put them into a role that they're really very, very good at. We then, because the nature of hierarchy, we take them out of the role that they're really good at and put them in a management role that they're perhaps less good at. Take them out of the thing that they were interested in joining the business for in the first yeah. place. And then we kind of cut them free. We give them some technical skills and knowledge. But actually, in terms of the key skills they need of positive psychology, principled negotiation, behavioral science, all of the skills that yeah. I use every day, yeah. these are absolutely in absentia, not just in terms of the L&D offer, but also in terms of the competency frameworks, the capabilities, the values, the behavioral frameworks that, that are wrapped around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a big there's a big question mark for me in the, the way that we manage talent and the whole L&D space is, are we really giving people the skills that they need to succeed in the modern workplace? And the skills that they need mm. to succeed in the modern workplace is a, a people. I mean, clearly they need digital skills. They need these, but people skills. And if we can't, if we don't invest in our in our managers and leaders and our aspiring managers and leaders also, and build that competence and that capability within our, our yeah. leadership population and management population, then I think we're giving them the wrong skills and we're, yeah. we're 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 cutting them adrift and putting them into some really very difficult positions with very few tools in their toolbox other than a hammer. We give them a hammer, and then every problem. And you the imagine that they're going to be able nail. to cut a piece of wood with a hammer. Yeah, right? you can't. You, do, you, need, you need a range of <laughs> yes. skills in your toolbox. But if you've only given them a hammer and every yeah. problem is a nail, it's it, it's self-evidently exactly. going to create problems. And then we start to ask scratch heads why they're problems. Well, you kind of, the manual tells them to behave badly. The manual says, I don't trust you. I'm not giving you the skills that you need to do it. So yeah, it, it's yeah. structurally and systemically needs to be rethought. Yeah, the manual says that you should be defensive. Right. And that creates so many problems as well. Right. And you mentioned leadership and you mentioned human um, skills. And I think this is very much one of the things that we are trying to implement as part of our trainings. You know, whenever we work organizations, we think that through the lenses of leadership training, you can really solve pretty much most problems, you know, as long as you have that purposeful leadership and so on. So we, we're trying to really create the framework at the moment just to really find a sweet spot there. Okay, you know, with this, I can deal with pretty much anything. You know, it's all about people. It's all about understanding your role as a leader, understanding how, you know, the relations as well, right, that you have between leaders, decision-making, you know, the whole, what data tell you nowadays as well, you know, how to make decisions, and of course, how you protect your people, how you create a, that culture. Yeah. But anyway, um, very fascinating points, actually, especially about the this culture hub, you know, uh, it's not the, the L&D or the corporate university anymore, it's, the, it's a culture hub, as, you, as you're saying. Very, very interesting. You mentioned uh, this uh, restorative justice, yes. correct? Why is it important and why is it different from other justice models that we have in the workplace? So the primary justice model in our workplace is, is retributive justice. Right, tell me about so it. Retributive justice is about finding fault and then allocating blame, probably shaming people along mm. the way and, and, and upsetting them in order to reach a punishment or a punitive sanction mm. for the wrongdoing and the sanction should in retributive terms should meet the sort of meet the, the the crime but in an organization the only sanction that we have is dismissal everything else is a 
pre-dismissal. Everything else is, there's no other sanction. We can't apply any other sanction. We don't fine people or send them off and go and sit on the yeah. naughty step <laughs> for 10 minutes. There's no other sanction. So the only sanction is dismissal. So retributive justice is a model of justice drawn heavily from, from litigation, which then sits through those processes I've described earlier and um, is designed to minimise the risk to the employer in the employment tribunal. There's a piece mm. of case law called the Birchell test, which people may have heard of, and if not, it's called it's a piece of case law, case law from Julie Birchell versus BHS, British Home Stores, from 1978, which demands an organisation undertakes a reasonable investigation in order to be able to reach a reasonable outcome, in which case the case in the tribunals would be fair. 1978, no other part wow. of our organisations is defined by 1978 characteristics, and BHS no longer exists, and I don't know what Judy Birchall is <laughs> So, but, but what that does, I think, it, wow. it drives yeah. all the wrong behaviours in our organisations. So, and what happens with retributive justice, if we use apply a little bit of neuroscience here as well, if you look at retributive justice, retributive justice invokes in us as human beings a, a response, a, a response in our in our minds. It fires off a little part of our brain called the amygdala, uh, and that amygdala sees a threat, a danger, and that sends off a cortisol response, adrenaline and cortisol response. Those are the mm. stressor hormones which prepare us for the fight. So those retributive justice almost is, is seen as, as a threat. So when I go through the policies mm. and processes of the organisation, which are the descriptor of justice because they define justice the policies yeah. and the rules they are all about risk mitigation they are all about blame and sanction and they're all about releasing a cortisol response in the individual they generate the stress response so i sit down with an hr director uh, or, or senior, a senior leader and say actually let's look at the policy framework what is it that you're trying to do what do you want to do and what we want to do is to create we want to change behaviour. We want people to align their behaviours to the core values of the organisation. We want them to be productive. We want them to feel included. We want them mm. to feel safe. We want to create a positive working environment. So we rewrite those policies and procedures. Rather than looking at releasing cortisol and adrenaline, let's think about how we might release serotonin or oxytocin or, or endorphins, the more positive, yeah. happier hormones. And those happier hormones aren't just about being happy. They move us into a flow state. Mm. And that flow mm. state helps us to generate to be the best version of ourselves. But in that flow state, we can also have really good quality, adult to adult, um, yeah. of, with our clients. Yeah. So if we want the process to do that, let's strip out the retributive elements mm. and replace them with restorative. So the model of justice I've created is called transformational justice. And transformational justice blends due process, the need to be able to stand up in a court and say to the judge, this is what we did. So there's a due process element yeah. so you can demonstrate it. I've, talked about say the triage process and how you would triage a case with restorative justice which is about compassion about dialogue about connection about resolving issues constructively blended those two together ensured there's sufficient robustness that the organization can still take tough action when there's been obvious wrongdoing mm. so it can still dismiss if, if needed and created this justice model which which takes retribution out of the system and replaces it with this restorative approach. And that's what's enshrined within the, re the, the resolution framework I described earlier and across the entire transformational culture model, which would also then sit within the people function as the administration of justice, ju right, transformational justice, mm -hmm. rather than retributive uh, or, mm -hmm. or punitive mm -hmm. sanction-based justice. Mm -hmm. Understood. Let's move on a little bit from this because I get a feeling that we learned a a lot about the problems that organizations have today. <laughs> so yeah. it's been very interesting. But let's 
look at more you know, a more positive yeah. outlook now, right? So um, let's look into the topic of your book, Transformational Culture, you know, which you've been talking about it. Yeah. But I just want you to get a little bit deeper into it. Um, I was looking uh, at your website and you said there's seven C's yes. which are part of this framework, right? Can, can you talk about them and can you highlight what you think is which one of those C's are the most important ones? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. So the seven C's, so the transformational culture model has transformational culture hub, it has eight enablers, and those outputs from a transformational culture is what I call the seven C's. It's not the seven C's of Rye, like the Queen song, mm. but the seven C's of transformationalism. And those seven C's are both outputs and then they're fed back in into the system as, as inputs, which turbocharge the the, 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 the culture and the organisation's yeah. achievement of that. So the, the the ones that really stand out for me, I think, well, there's 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 connection. How we how we connect people together and create webs of connection within our workplaces, uh, which is really 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 powerful. There's communication and how we communicate. There's compassion and compassionate leadership. And compassion, can I just say for the record, is not a sign of weakness. Compassion is a sign of strength. Absolutely. So how do we create yeah. compassionate kind of relationships within within the workplace? But what I think is really important, one of the seven C's, is building common purpose. Aligning around the organization's purpose, aligning around those core values, and creating a set of shared behaviors that we can engage with constructively within the workplace. So to me, one of the real, uh, each of them is important, but creating an alignment to organization's purpose and having mm. a really big conversation about my personal values and beliefs, your personal values and beliefs, the values of the organization, and how do we all work together mm. to achieve a sense of shared and common purpose. And my experience of, of the most successful organizations I work with, because you're right, there's, we don't want to, to overstate the, the negative, although unfortunately there are many to state, but when we see successful organizations working efficiently and effectively with really good employee experience really strong employee value proposition really good customer experience it's often measured with a real clear connection to purpose and a clear sense of it's not just the purpose from the ceo or from no. exco it's the purpose is owned from within the organization i know it's a uh, a much used um uh, uh example when yep. a president um Oh, I went to NASA and was talking to the person sweeping the the floor and talked about well, what are you doing? I'm sending a I'm sending a man to 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 the to the moon. Um, so it's about how does everyone have a sense of shared and common purpose right. to that ultimate strategic objective? And the name of the president is completely escaped. <laughs> really embarrassing, but it will come to me in a second. Um, so that's a really clear message to me around that um, uh, around uh, how we build common purpose. I probably would come back to compassion as well as I think one of one of one of the ones I think we've almost designed compassion out of our workplaces. We've designed in rigidity, complexity, and bureaucracy, um, and we hope that those will 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 work. And in mm. some respects, they kind of replace, I think, the ability to have human to human contacts and interactions with each other. So I think I'd probably pull up compassion common purpose as being some of those key traits and key outcomes from the transformational mm. culture. And do you see them as attributes or um, skills that leaders in the organization need to develop? Or how do you see these seven C's actually coming to life in the organization? They are attributes. They're attributes. I think, you know, when I'm working with organizations to drive culture change, you can argue that the culture change is one conversation at a time. So if the conversations in our workplaces are driven by compassion, connectivity, common purpose, 
curiosity, another right. one of the C's where we're, we're engaging with each other. Those conversations can drive the change within the workplace. Mm. But when our leaders and managers exhibit and role model and espouse those principles and align their behaviours to the core values and deliver those seven C's through their, in, what I call the actions and interactions and reactions that our leaders breathe out, but the air that our leaders breathe yeah. out, the actions, interactions and reactions. When our leaders' behaviours then their actions, interactions, and reactions are aligned to those seven Cs. The air that they breathe out, that we all breathe in. The right. Air, yeah. actions, interactions, and reactions. That then turbocharges those changes within the culture. It sort of reinforces those changes. So one change the culture one conversation at a time, driven by those seven Cs, supported by efficient and effective line management, a people function who can support them, a collaborative culture hub, but where the leaders are aligned to those, mm -hmm. um, then I think you start to see real significant culture shifts within the workplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was looking again on, on, on your website and um, there are three phases of this implementation process for you to embrace and adopt that transformational culture. Talk me through these three stages and uh, especially looking at the roles that key people play, like... What does HR play at these stages and uh, L&D and leaders? Yeah. I think the first stage has to be the evidence-based stage. Mm. You know, I, when I was writing the book, I put in what is culture into Google. There's over 4 million definitions <laughs> of culture. And I think anyone could just pick up a book or identify a particular culture model and say, right, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. And I don't think that's right. And that's certainly not why I, 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 wrote, I wrote my text. So the first phase is about understanding, A, what the current state is, and B, what the dream state will be. Where are you now, and where do you want to be, and who needs to be involved on the journey for moving from the current to the future state? And what's the evidence of the need for change? What's the data telling us? You know, HR in particular, or the people function in particular, sit on an enormous amount of data every day that's telling them a very powerful story about the organisation. And I think mining that data, utilising that data to help tell the story, gaining stories from people who are in in our workplaces. What's the climate in a in a call centre? What's yep. the working relations like in a depot? What's really going on for you out in the field when you're working in a in a ward or a clinic somewhere in a in a, in a hospital? Mm -hmm. So phase one is gathering data but implicit in that is a big listening exercise of hearing understanding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and engaging with with, with, with uh, multiple stakeholders from across the piece and that's a really exciting role for the hr l d mm. uh leadership function to to, to, to the data stage the data stage, yeah yeah and getting out and mm. you know, go out that stage one i could probably describe in simple terms go out and give everyone a jolly good listening to Listen. Listen. That's that's the, the that's the the lesson for for the first day or the mission, I, I guess. Yeah. Go and listen. Go and find out what's really going on in your organisation and listen and get the data, and help that data then to inform mm. phase two, which is the shaping. Right. And stage two is where you start to shape the culture that you want to be. What mm. what's you know be the leader, be the organisation you want to be. What does that look like? And the the transformational culture model I've de designed. Is an attempt to provide a blueprint, right, um, for that. And Dave Ulrich. So, what does that look like? Is it a, an organogram, or is it a set of values? What, what does that actually look like in practice? So, it's it's a system, right? Um, so, it's it's it, yeah, it's it, it's a system. It's a system. So it has the culture hub. It has those eight enablers. So it's about values. It's about the people and culture function. I won't go through uh -huh. the eight enablers. And then it has the seven C's, which are the output measures, which then feed in um, f feed back in. 
So it just, it provides a, a blueprint for organisations who want to define what does good look like? Because what does good culture look like? What can we aspire to? It's, it's, it's nebulous, it's abstract. And I didn't think that was good enough for organisations who wanted something more specific. So I wanted to give a, a, an image or a descriptor of what good might look like. Yeah. I'm not trying to be prescriptive and say, right, this is the culture you should have in order to deliver a good culture. But it's there aren't many descriptions of what good might look like. And this is one. And this is a blueprint that you can then take and then deploy and adapt into your organisation. But it starts with you. So it starts with phase one, the data. Phase two is the shaping. So building the, the transformational culture hub, as, I, as I've described. Rewriting and rethinking some of the policies, processes uh, within our organisation. Developing a behavioural framework. So that's a really important part of the, of the whole mix is developing a behavioural framework so we can codify the behaviours that we mm -hmm. want to see in our organisation, which are aligned to our values, which means that we don't need such rigid processes. Yeah. Management capability, learning and development programmes for our leaders, developing those leadership skills, looking at the, from 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 selection, recruitment selection, the whole employee value proposition, or as I call mm -hmm. it, from, from, from graduate to golf course, looking at the whole experience of our workforce and the whole life cycle of the workforce and aligning each of those key stages of the employee life cycle to the, the culture so that's phase two really is building mm -hmm. it's fantastic and exciting yeah and phase three then is the normalization evaluation process where we study evaluate the impact of, of this within the organization adapting it amending it as necessary and in essence the normalization phase is mm -hmm. when this becomes a reality for the organization mm -hmm. for its mm -hmm. stakeholders its customers and its employees and also we really found we, we've developed an initiative called transformational trailblazers where we have cohorts of organizations we've got cohort one now has six organizations in it so we have two large local authorities we have a private uh, hotel we have uh, hospitals we have a number of other organizations in that and so it's about also sharing the experience mm -hmm. between each other. What does you know? How are you doing? What's it look? What's it look like? What changes are you making? So we build these cohorts, these trailblazer cohorts, mm. to share and then disseminate that practice. Who usually take part in these in these cohorts? Is the HR people mostly? It's mostly HR or, or or the people function, but but not but not solely. Um, mm. You know, the unions play an absolute critical role. So most of the organisations that I've described there with unionised the, the, the hotel, not yeah, yeah. So, but who the, where's the employee voice? So employee, what I call that modern triumvirate of the employee mm. or their representative, the people, the chief people officer and the, the C-suite leader. So the leader, the people function and the employee function. So they are the three stakeholders, right. the, the three key ones. So whilst we would start with the HR or people function, no, it very quickly becomes um, yeah, a wider, It's bigger wider than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, what challenges really can one expect when adopting that model there's some there's some really interesting challenges one of the challenges is our absolute reliance on retributive systems to get work done and the vested interests if i can use the term vested interests, which is a very loaded term that exist around retribution people benefit there's an industry created mm. around retribution outside of the workplace the legal profession internally we, we're all aligned to this internal system so trying to shift away from retributive justice to the justice model that we've been describing challenges people mm. to a very deep level in terms of the status the orthodoxies and the paradigms that we've we've all grown up with this is this has been enshrined in our organization's workplaces for a great many years 
So the biggest challenge is, does the organisation have the courage to really change the systems, the rules, the policies, the processes and procedures in the workplace in order to create this, the conditions for, for the culture that I'm describing? Mm -hmm. It's not possible to call yourself a compassionate, kind, modern, progressive workplace and still have a disciplinary procedure which causes people to experience enormous harm and hurt. So mm. there's that, in order to be able to create a positive workplace culture, it has to be more than sticking, we have a positive workplace culture poster mm. on the wall or a zero tolerance policy on the wall or a set of values in the lobby or a, a new fangled thing that we've got in the organization that screams organizational culture but the felt experience of the employees is that's not what's happening to me yeah. because so do, does the organization have the courage which is one of the other c's as well does the organization have the courage to really challenge at a very deep level mm. those those orthodoxies and i think that's it's both the challenge but as soon as we overcome it wow it's liberating yeah it is imagine. liberating it's the greatest most exciting opportunity that presents an organization when they make that decision and show that courage. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you are, of course, the CEO of your own company as well, right? Yes, I am. How do you apply these, all these theory, you know, this methodology, all your experience that you've um, acquired over the years? How do you actually bring it to life in your in your business? Yeah, no, it's a really great question. It's important that I do so. I think <laughs> yeah. the, the old saying, the cobbler's children have the worst shoes in the village. I don't want that to apply to, <laughs> to TCM. So we are one of the cohort one on the transformational trailblazers. So I talked about the cohort one. We are, yeah. our organisation is, is, is cohort one and we have consultants working with us. So we are looking at our own rules and processes. And it's amazing, even from an organisation who advocates progressive systems and rules, how quickly we've developed a rule book which starts to mirror and look like some yeah. of the traditional ones. So we are looking at our own rules and rules-based processes, mm. constantly looking at our learning and development pathways and programmes for our workforce. Yeah. We have a big contingent workforce, which is which consultants. So we're constantly looking at developing how systems yeah. and processes for working with them and, and developing those, as long as we don't fall foul of IR35, of course, and ensuring <laughs> that they're not treated as, as employees. Yes. But we have a real partnership with our consultants, yeah. ensuring yeah. That, that that works very well. It's necessary now, right? Organizations, they are moving to, towards this networked approach, right? Working with externals, working with freelancers, consultants, and all of that, right? It's, it's, the, it's the next step, right? You need to look after them as well. Absolutely, absolutely. There are certain rules that we have to follow yeah. in terms of, the, like I said, the IR35 rules. But other than that, we do want to support them. So yeah, we do want to develop them. So we do have engagement and development and training yeah. programs for them. And they're such an important part of how we work. All of our frontline delivery with our customers is delivered through through consultants yeah. have a head office uh, of around about 10 and then 60 70 consultants mm -hmm. who are out there in the field mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's 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 a really exciting journey i'm really proud to be sort of one of those trailblazers and yeah trying to to to, to live it and, and breathe it and feel what it feels like in our own organization and seeing the benefits but it's galvanized I mean, I, I guess some of my workers, workers, some of my colleagues rather, would be probably fed up of listening to me talking about the book, <laughs> and would be pleased when we don't talk about the book because it's been the subject of lots of conversations. But many of my colleagues would be um, uh, are, are really excited about the opportunity of working with customers to deliver this, but also seeing it come to life mm. internally for themselves. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. good. Well, hopefully, you see the benefits of it in a couple of years' time, or. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner than that, hopefully. Even <laughs> yeah. Indeed, I'd love to come back and tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just let's go back to you. 
right? We talked a little bit about your business. Uh, we started this conversation talking about where you're from and all of that. Uh, wanna, I, I want to end like that as well. So yeah. we're all facing a lot of challenges now at the, at the moment of COVID, a lot of uncertainty at, in, in the air. I mean, the last couple of months here, at least in the UK, there has been a little bit of normality, but things are starting as well to to go back, you know, a lot of uncertainty there. How have you coped in the last couple of years, you know, personally, you know, what kind of lessons did you learn about yourself? You know, how, how has it been for you? Yeah, it's been, it's been, so I had COVID um, in the summer and that was a really difficult period. I had the kids on holiday, I've got three kids. Yeah. So we had, a, everyone was locked in. So that was a particularly <laughs> challenging moment where we kind of felt it and lived it. But thankfully I'd had the, 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 the vaccinations and it was myself and my wife and family, we all got it. Uh, it was a fairly uh, light, uh, it wasn't, wasn't too different. Yeah, yeah. But of course, the lockdown and the, the, the challenges that I threw it were, were significant. I, I I closed our office probably around about the beginning of March. I remember going up to Manchester. March 2020. 2020, yeah. I remember going up to Manchester and everyone was starting to talk about COVID after the February half term. And I went up to Manchester and there were people on the train coughing and spluttering and the train, everyone, no one had masks on. You couldn't get, there was no hand yeah. sanitizer anywhere in the whole, yeah. it was it was like gold dust. And I remember looking at that and thinking, this ain't going to go very well. No. So I shut our office down. And of course, as mediators, we're all about getting into a room with people, yeah, with yeah, trainers, course, with yeah, coaches, yeah. we're mediators. So we had to work really hard to move our entire offering, which was probably only 1% was offered virtually to 100% virtual delivery. So, um, you know, some practical things, getting everyone laptops and PCs into, you couldn't get laptops and PCs, everyone was moving home. So just practical considerations of the technology, making sure it was secure, you know, we're dealing with ultra sensitive information. Mm. So it needed to be, uh, it needed to be handled securely. So yeah, we needed to make sure course, yeah. our IT security was, was, so that that practical was, was the challenge around March 2020, April 2020. Then we saw a little drop off in business. Um, we have an investigations arm in the company as well. Yeah. So that kept going. But then start, things started to pick up. Mm. And around June 2020, we started to see things. Inquiries were coming back in for mediations. We were starting to do virtual training. And really from March, June 2020, we've experienced the most unbelievable growth as a business. Uh, real rapid growth, a real shift in focus to what we do. It's given us opportunities to work globally, uh, obviously virtually. Yeah. We've been able to, to break down a lot of the geographic boundaries. So we've been doing mediations all over the world. We've been doing training all over the world. I, we, we, we ran training for Bloomberg um, in New York, uh, based with a trainer in London. So we picked up some international clients. I've set up a new office in New York. Oh, wow. Um, so we're able to expand into the States and we're just in the process of doing that uh, expansion now. So from that initial uh, difficult yeah. stage, we have seen record-breaking sales month on month, every month since since then. Uh, oh. And we've adapted. I mean, my team and the consultants and everyone at the TCM head office have just been unbelievable uh, in terms of the work they've done and the, the courage they've shown and the loyalty that they've shown to the yeah. business and to, to our customers. We've won awards. I was given an award for HR most influential top 20 thinker in the UK. We won the personnel today award with TSB. Um, I wrote the book. Yeah. Obviously been busy. Well. Yeah. Been busy. Yeah, see, yeah. Um, moved house as well in May to the oh, wow. beautiful Saffron Walden just outside, the, <laughs> outside Cambridge. So it's been busy, but no, I mean, obviously I, you know, I, I, I acknowledge yeah. distressful and harmful and, 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 and terrible COVID has been obviously we're of course, yeah, watching yeah, the news yeah, with, with bated breath to see what the next steps might be on the, really these hard. New, the new variants. But 
as you asked about me personally. Yeah, of course. Yeah, personally, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, um, yeah. We, we've it's we, yeah. we've seen real growth and opportunity. So, I just wanted to understand: uh, have the type of challenges that your clients presented to you changed in in during COVID? They have, um, and to to an extent, people are still people are still people. Yeah. Uh, what we did find is certainly for the conflict resolution arm of of, of the business, it, it it went very quiet. But it's what then what I saw is the conflict started to come to life, zombie conflicts. They kind of went away in March twenty twenty and then started yeah. to come back again. So we, and we started to see because people were working virtually that they weren't able to resolve issues virtually. So we started to see a propensity to more challenging conflict. In fact, for some of the conflict resolution work that we were doing, we saw a significant increase in it. And also some of the relationship breakdowns were more damaged. The relationships were more damaged and the relationships were more um, hostile than probably I'd, I'd seen in a very, very really? long time. Um, we did see, uh, so we've seen, a, 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 but then we've seen a real increase in the use of mediation and conflict resolution. In terms of our training and learning and development offering, the challenge was about getting people in a room to, to work virtually, to be on a on training course when people had Zoom fatigue yeah. and, you know, you're having to deliver your, what might be a one-day training, it sounds very granular, but a one-day training course, maybe in three module pieces yeah, of yeah. content to make it accessible to people who are just worn out with, with being on Teams and Zoom. So some practical considerations. But I do think going back to the to the culture change, I think people have begun to open their minds and their hearts to another way of running their organisations, mm. and that maybe those command and control orthodoxies and those systems that people have become so familiar with are being challenged. You know, we've 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 seen that. So there's been a real positive desire to to perhaps do things very to, mm -hmm. to change mm -hmm. and to do things differently, and I think that's been a positive outcome. Um, you know, people have been very loyal to their worker, to their to their to their to their employers rather. So they have committed to those and shown real flexibility. Mm -hmm. And now that's being paid back with a more flexible hybrid working. So okay. we're seeing a real opportunities for for organisations to to engage with their employees and other stakeholders much more <coughs> constructively. And that's definitely happening. That's good right now. Right. That's a good 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 signs at least. Um, David, uh, as a last question for the day, I just wanted to ask you, really, um, what would be your final piece of advice to the whole HR, L&D, le business leaders out there who are really looking to transform their organizations, embrace a healthier, a better culture? What would, be, what would you say? I mean, the first one is, is, is listen. You know, we've got two ears and a mouth, and if we use them in that ratio that we were given... I think our organisations will be much better places. So the first piece of advice, if I can say it really bluntly, is shut up and listen. <laughs> Stop talking and listen to your people. The second one is don't be afraid of disagreements and conflict. Don't wrap your organisation up in so much complexity that you don't allow them to happen. Manage them effectively, manage them constructively and believe in your people when you give them the agency and empower them to resolve issues. They have the ability to do it. So creating the conditions for that. And let's give our line managers who are dealing with this stuff, let's give them the tools they need. If it's only a hammer, as we said earlier, in the toolbox, they need the saw, they need the pliers, they need a range of different tools. So look at the competencies and the training. And it has to move towards some of the ones I talked about. Those They're not they're not soft skills. Again, you still hear that term, soft skills. It's quite unbelievable. These are tough people skills, positive psychology, principled yep. negotiation. 
these skills of dialogue are absolutely key for the modern manager. So listen more. Don't be scared of conflict. Manage it effectively and give our leaders and managers the skills that they need to handle the challenges of the 21st century. Fantastic. Very clear. Um, David, thank you very much for taking the time and for this really, really fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. Really learned a lot as well. For the people who are listening, what would be the best way to get in touch with you? Fantastic. Well, my book is available on, on Amazon. Um, yeah. So it's called Transformational Culture by David Little. Uh, my email address, if, if that's okay, is david.little at the TCM group. And our website is the tcmgroup.com. Right. The tcmgroup.com. And you're on LinkedIn, social All media. LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I still haven't quite mastered the uh, other social channels, but LinkedIn. LinkedIn I'm, is, I, a, I, is yeah, a good one. Yeah. Good yeah. One if you'd like to learn more about Headspring, please have a look at our website. We have a lot of content there, a lot of resources for learning and development professionals as well. It's headspringexecutive.com. Headspringexecutive.com. And uh, for the time being, this has been me, Tiago Kivi. My guest today was David Lido. Thank you so much, David, and I uh, hope to see you soon.